In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our liturgical practices seem designed to make Lent a jarring season. I find it jarring year after year when we begin Lent on Ash Wednesday by disfiguring our faces just after reading Jesus telling his disciples not to do as the hypocrites do by disfiguring their faces when they fast. I also find the faster discipline itself that we take on through Lent jarring, and so they're meant to be reminders of our frailty and weakness. I find it jarring today, as on every Palm Sunday, when we joyfully celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, then proceed to enact the story of his passion. These jarring features serve as reminders of the ways sin literally disintegrates us. When our desires for whatever we've given up in Lent are at war with our vows to do without, it brings to our attention the lack of integrity in our nature, inherited from the fall and compounded by our very own sins. When we process with palms singing all glory, laud, and honor, then shortly after shout crucify him and release Barabbas, we identify with the broken-mindedness of Jesus's community and recognize the fractures in our own. We are divided within ourselves, within our community, and from God. Of course, as much as our Lenten practices might make us feel the weight of these sorry divisions, we are also reminded today that Christ felt all of them immeasurably more, culminating in the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somehow, we are told, Christ's being forsaken by God was for our sake. Somehow, by his pouring out his life unto death, becoming obedient even unto death on a cross, by being numbered with the transgressors and bearing the sins of many, by being crushed for our iniquities, humbling himself, being led like a lamb to the slaughter, somehow by all of this, Christ's punishment made us whole, at peace, unity, and concord, integrated. Somehow by his wounds, we are healed. This is surely one of the great mysteries of our faith and not something we can fully understand. But I do think we can misunderstand it. And I think so because I believe I often fall in the way of misunderstanding it when I listen to scriptures like ours today and tell myself a story like this. Our sins incurred a great big debt to God, and God's justice required that somebody pay it, but we ourselves couldn't, so God's Son became human in order that he might pay it for us, and that's what he did by his passion. 
Now, lest anyone take offense here supposing that I'm criticizing their favorite theologian, I promise you I'm not. There are sophisticated and biblically well-grounded versions of the doctrine of the atonement that maybe resemble what I have just called a misunderstanding. But I assure you, the misunderstanding in the story I just told is my own. What's wrong with it, exactly? Well, to begin with, it gives the impression that God doesn't actually ever forgive our sins. He doesn't forgo collecting payment on any part of the debt we racked up. He simply accepts payment in full from someone else, namely Jesus. For another thing, it presents a perplexing account of God's justice. How is it just for God to punish someone who even the Roman centurion recognizes was surely innocent? And why couldn't God's justice allow him to do as the father in the parable of the prodigal son did, sweeping aside the debt of our sin in an extravagant, loving embrace? Lastly, how does Christ's atoning work on the cross accomplish atonement, which etymologically literally does mean at-one-ment, unifying or making whole again, something that was sundered? How does it heal the fracturing of our natures within ourselves, between us and our neighbors, and so forth? One contemporary writer whom I particularly admire, the philosopher and theologian Eleanor Stump, suggests that the first step toward addressing at least some of these puzzles and correcting the way I, at least, have tended to misunderstand the message of our scriptures today is to recognize that since all sin is at root sin against God himself, God jolly well could have forgiven all our sins in a sweeping unilateral stroke without requiring satisfaction, a notion that literally means doing enough to pay a debt or remedy a wrong. Nevertheless, she suggests, the best way for God to forgive our sins was indeed in precisely the way he did, through Christ, the incarnate Son of God, making satisfaction for our sins. And the reason why is not that God's justice demanded it, but rather that this was the best way by which he might heal our wounded natures. She offers a homely example to explain her reasoning, which I'll modify slightly to make it personal. My wife, Karis, is a lover of art, and some of her most precious possessions are paintings hanging in our living room, one by my mother, and a couple by talented folks from here at All Souls. My son Gus is a lover of sports and spends much of his free time playing football, basketball, soccer, and so forth. We admonish him regularly to do so in the yard as opposed to the house, and least of all in the living room. But suppose that contrary to Karis's admonishment, he plays ball in the living room and destroys one of her beloved marsh paintings. 
and while I'm sure this would never happen, pretend he's so intent on his game that he does nothing more than holler, sorry mom, I wrecked your painting, before dashing off to continue his game. Stump suggests the real problem Karis would be faced with here, the obstacle in the path of her forgiveness, lies in Gus, not her. Whatever else forgiveness involves, it surely means an act of love toward the one you forgive. And loving someone means both desiring their good and desiring somehow union, closeness, intimacy with them in at least one of the various forms this might take. Now, Gus has shown himself to be careless and callous about her painting, and so his will and hers are far apart. He doesn't love what she loves and doesn't love her as she would want him to. Of course, Gus does love her, but clearly, too, in this example, inordinate love of football or whatever has introduced a division in his own will, too. His love for his mom isn't as wholehearted as it should be. What could rectify this situation? It would help, surely, if Gus were to attempt to make satisfaction for his misdeed to try to fix the painting, say. It wouldn't even matter too much if his efforts were utterly unsuccessful and maybe even left the painting worse off. <laughs> the point would be that he was trying to restore the upset harmony between his mother and himself and at the same time within himself. On this way of understanding the purpose of satisfaction, I think it's easier to see how one person might make satisfaction for someone else, as we think Christ did for us. Suppose Gus discovers that paintings like the one he's destroyed are impossible to fix and really expensive, but still strongly desiring to make satisfaction, he asks me to replace the painting for him. If his desire is strong enough, this step might succeed in restoring harmony in the ways I just mentioned, even if he does none of the work himself. The same might even be true if I were the one who first approached Gus with the suggestion about replacing the painting. In fact, it might even work if Karis, by some bit of motherly magic, disguised herself as someone capable of undoing the damage and convinced Gus to align himself strongly with this purpose. This last gambit would clearly require deep love and considerable humility on Karis's part. She would need something like, as St. Paul says in our reading from Philippians, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and humbled himself, 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why death? Why death on a cross? Stump writes as follows, human sin has pride and selfishness at its root and constitutes disobedience to God whose will it contravenes. The restoration involved in making satisfaction for human sinning then is a matter of presenting God with an instance of human nature which is marked by perfect obedience, humility, and charity which is at least as precious in God's eyes as the marring of humanity by sin is offensive. But this is just what the second person of the Trinity does by taking on human nature and voluntarily suffering a painful and shameful death. By being willing to move from the exaltation of deity to the humiliation of crucifixion, Christ shows boundless humility. By consenting to suffer the agony of his passion and death because God willed it, when something in his own nature shrank powerfully from it, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Christ manifests absolute obedience. Finally, because he undertakes all his suffering and humiliation out of love for sinful human beings, Christ exhibits the most intense charity. So in his passion and death, Christ restores what sin has marred in human nature. In this way, then, because of his divine nature and because of the extent of his humility, obedience, and charity, Christ made satisfaction for all the sins of the human race. Now, in offering this account of the atonement, neither Stump nor I by any means would want to suggest that we've plumbed the depths of its mysteries. Among the lingering questions we might have at this point is why the cry of dereliction? When we've heard tell of martyrs undergoing even worse sufferings while singing hymns, Stump appeals here to the psychological concepts of joint attention, perspective taking, and mind reading, abilities we typically develop pretty early on in our lives to share in the thoughts, emotions, and desires of someone else. What Christ did on the cross, she suggests, was to mind read, as it were, the entirety of the human race at once, taking on our perspective and thereby feeling with us the stain of sin upon our souls, all the ways we are fragmented within ourselves, divided from one another, and of course sundered from the divine life itself. The experience might be comparable to what Frodo the Hobbit undergoes when he slips on the one ring and mind reads the dark Lord Sauron, feeling the full weight of his malevolence and corruption. I find that a helpful comparison for getting a grip on one mysterious aspect of Christ's passion. But I'll tell you what, to return to the point at which I began, 
I am grateful for our liturgical practices as Anglicans. In particular, I'm grateful for the fact that there's no need for this sermon to tackle everything it might be worthwhile to say about the atonement. We've had now most of a whole season to be jarred into thinking about our own sinful divisions. Let's now enter with reverence a week of thinking about just how very much they cost. Amen.